0: from you uh, even more, especially this morning, to hear um, what it is you want to do in our hearts, how you want to bring humility, how you want to bring understanding and grace, um, and uh, and the invitation to walk with you in truth and in grace and freedom, and so um, thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you want to do this morning in our hearts, uh, in our relationships, uh, and that you would... Uh, yeah, that you would let us hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, would you guys say amen? Amen? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, guys. <clears throat> you guys feeling all right? I'm feeling better every day, which has been great. How many of you know what we're talking about today already? Show of hands, a bunch of you. Um, I should tell you in advance, this is the most convoluted outline I've ever presented on a Sunday morning. You want to hear my, you want to hear what my outline is? Yeah. Scott, get your pen. I have three prelimin- or sorry, oh geez, here we go. I have four preliminary considerations we're going to look at. I have six main issues that we need to address. Then I'm going to look at three biblical passages more in-depth to answer some more of our questions. And then I'm going to end with six uh, directives for you. You ready? Do you need a minute to organize your paper? Maybe just get a grid, you know, and just like little boxes for each one. This morning I'm going to talk about uh, a question that's come up well, it's actually a set of questions, but it's an issue uh, that has come up in, in my conversations with many of you uh, many times over the last, actually, probably a couple of years. Uh, it is a conversation that uh, our elders have had with each other. That we've talked through together uh, to try to come to some understanding. It's a conversation that uh, my, my staff team, we've had... Numbers of different conversations about this topic, and uh, the topic is symbolic participation, which is probably uh, for some of you seems like a very sort of vague title. So let me explain what I mean by symbolic participation, and then we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. I have to I have to move fairly quickly to get through uh, what I want to get through this morning. Um, So it's going to feel a little more like a class this morning than, you know, than a pep talk. You okay with that? Well, it doesn't matter. You're here and that's what's (laughs) happening, so. Actually, Scott, can you put up that clock? Of all Sundays, I probably need my clock uh, this morning. (laughs) There it is. I can see it. Ooh, we better get going. The question I want to answer is, how do I, as a follower of Jesus, decide whether or not to participate in certain events, accept certain opportunities, or enter into certain environments that are at odds with my Christian values? And how do I respond to other Christians who make those decisions differently than I do? Whew. You tracking with that? Let me give you just a real simple definition of what I mean by symbolic participation. Symbolic participation is participation in need of an interpretation. In other words, um, I noticed that you were part of this thing, or you went to this thing, or I saw you do this thing, What does that mean? You track with that? Why? Why were you part of this thing? Uh, What was your intention? Symbolic participation is participation where the meaning of your participation isn't automatic. Right? How do I decide how I, as a believer, will engage with the world and show up in certain environments, certain places, uh, show up to certain events, um, as a believer, how do I make those decisions, whether it's appropriate or not for me to do so, and then how do I, uh, understand other believers who will make those decisions differently than I do? So four preliminary considerations right out of the gate. The first one is this: We're in the middle of a generational swing on this subject. Uh, we had, in fact, I was having a conversation with my parents this week about this. Um, there, we're in the we're in a swing, and the swing is like this: uh, Over on this side, we had stay away, stay a hundred miles away. It might be bad. It looks bad. Just don't be a part of it. And my generation came along, you know, super full of themselves and said, the Bible doesn't say that's wrong. I can do whatever I want. And what we're doing now is we're throwing out all boundaries around those kinds of things and just sort of pretending like it doesn't matter. A generation ago, Christians were drawing pretty hard lines that in some cases were impossible to justify. And... My younger, immature believers, they were mocked for doing so, and now that generation, my generation younger, were abandoning all lines without giving much thought as to how it matters. I'll give you an example of this. In my parents' generation, there was a lot of people, my parents' and grandparents' generation, there was a lot of believers who said, I will not consume alcohol and I will not visit establishments that serve alcohol because alcohol is very destructive in the lives of people. And then we came along and said, that's stupid. The Bible doesn't say you can't drink alcohol. Ha ha, you're a legalistic jerk. I'm going to go drink alcohol and celebrate my freedom in Christ. Sorry, did that hit too close to home for some of you? (laughs) (laughs) And that's in part true. When When you drink alcohol, you're not participating in the outcomes that alcohol produces in the lives of others directly, but there's some level it's, there's some level of participation, right? And I would say that that's symbolic participation. Did you know that in the last 20 years prior to the pandemic, in the age group that's 20 to 34, the rate of alcohol-related deaths is increasing by 7% per year? Not the number, the rate, and has been for more than two decades. Did you know that during the pandemic, the rate of alcohol-related deaths for the age group 20 to 34 increased by 30% per year during the pandemic? It's now in the top four leading causes of death for young people. Now you feel bad, don't you? It's a tricky thing, right? Because again, what we're dealing with is that participation requires some interpretation. If I drink alcohol, does that make me guilty of everything that alcohol does? No. But it is something, and if someone else draws a line and says, I can't in good conscience participate in this because of these things, that's something, right? Entertainment was another one where we're in a swing right now, you know. There was a a generation, two generations ago, they drew very, very strict lines around what we consumed for entertainment, and their concern was that entertainment was a predictor of moral decline. (laughs) Oh, geez. They couldn't have even imagined the rate at which that would be proven true. tough thing because if you draw a hard line someone can take issue with that and say well that's unfair and if you draw no lines we're in trouble so first we're in the middle of a generational swing secondly all kindness goodness and love by its very nature must reference some truth in other words if i tell my child that's not good that claim that's not good for you is based it has, it's referencing some version of truth, right? The only way I can know what's good is to reference some version of truth. The truth that I'll be referencing today, the truth that I assume that we're collectively referencing is the truth of the scripture and a description of good as God defines it. Because there are some things that God says are evil that the world says are good, and there are things that God said are good that the world says are evil. Many people are asking in in, in this question about how to participate in the world, they're asking the question, what is the kind thing to do? What is the loving thing to do? Well, you have to reference some version of truth to even make those decisions, and to say, well, I just don't really know what I think about this, is oftentimes a confession that I have not spent dedicated and earnest time in the Word of God to understand His will on this matter. If you're just shrugging your shoulders and just saying, well, I don't really know what I think about this, don't be lazy. There's a consequence to that. It is not loving to unconditionally approve of someone else's destructive deeds. You will hear people say, in protest, to drawing any set of boundaries, why can't we all just be kind? Again, what is kind depends on what is true. Number three, I'm not actually talking about protest. That's not what I'm covering. I'm not talking about participation versus protest. talking about deciding what it looks like to love and then finally if you're not on mission with jesus to seek and save the lost this teaching this morning and all of the ideas surrounding it are going to seem like a tedious and maybe even an irritating discussion and your response may be who really cares all i can really say to you now is that apathy is a vice, and it destroys the lives of those who are not healed of it. To approach a very important topic and say it doesn't really matter, uh, it will matter more than you, more than you believe. So that was just my introduction. Six issues that I must address before deciding on my participation. The first is the issue of principle. Is it right or wrong? So I'm going to go through these six issues. I'm going to show you the six considerations, issues that I have to deal with in making my decision. And then I'm going to, you'll be a little disappointed in the lack of depth. And then I'm going to jump into some passages and unpack them a little further. But I just want to show you the six the first is the issue of principle. Is it right or wrong? Meaning, is it inherently right or wrong? There's some events, there's some environments, some opportunities that are not inherently wrong or right. They're just, they just are, they're neutral. And then there are some events, some environments, some opportunities that are inherently wrong. And so I ask myself, is there, is on principle, is this thing right or wrong? Or is it neutral? Is it, is it something that doesn't come with, uh, Um, moral implications that cannot be separated. And then the second is the issue of participation. If I'm a part of this thing, is my participation real or symbolic? Can I be present without actively participating in something sinful or evil? Some additional ways to think about the issue of participation. Um, The issues I mentioned before, the generational issues of drinking and entertainment, I would say that most of your participation is mostly symbolic. So you attract with that, right? You can drink a cup of wine, and that cup of wine is not in and of itself um, morally wrong, nor is an environment where it's served inherently morally wrong. So your participation is mostly symbolic. And many of you know this, but if I was at a place that was serving wine and there were minors present, and I remained present and consumed alcohol with minors present consuming alcohol, by law, my participation is no longer symbolic, it is real. Do you understand that switch? I'm just using that as an example. Suddenly, my, my presence there takes on a different nature. I'm culpable because I'm a part, and by law, I would be held responsible. It doesn't matter what you construed your participation as, if you were present, you're responsible. Do you remember Pilate? Pontius Pilate wanted to change the nature of his participation. And how did he do that? Here, bring me some water. There. I'm no longer actively responsible. It's on you. Foolishness. He's entirely responsible because the way that he was participating cannot be dealt with through washing of hands. He's an active participant. His participation is real not just symbolic. That's the second issue. The third issue is the issue of proximity. Answering the question, what am I putting at risk? You know that long straightaway? uh, Just before Nanilchik? It's like you can see for like two miles, and then the hill goes up like this, and it's grassy on this side. ever walked out there to the left to the bluff anyone a few of you oh surely more of you come on guys you need to get out more (laughs) when you walk out there to the bluff uh the grass sort of rolls away from you and if you're if you've lived long enough you know that it probably there's probably a void underneath that at a certain point right and so as you as you approach the edge you if if you're if you're smart you know that as you get closer to the edge you're actually uh, increasing your risk right the issue of proximity is what am i putting at risk it is it is a naive thing to assume that when i put myself in proximity to things that are evil to things that god says are sin that i'm not incurring any risk by doing so that's a naive and presumptuous position And I'm not suggesting this morning that you should not take risks in being part of the world. We're actually commanded to do so. We're commanded to be in the world. But to say that I don't incur any risk when I put myself into environments where there's maybe a lot of evil things or evil influences or evil forces or something, uh, a celebration of sinful things, to say that I incur incur no risk upon myself is to ignore the entire testimony of Scripture. Jude 1. Jude 1. (laughs) There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse 22. And 23, have mercy on some who are doubting and save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. If you're walking with someone who's struggling with sin, Jude says, be careful. Be careful. When you put yourself in proximity to sin, even on a saving mission, be real careful. Luke 10:3 Go, behold, I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Thank you. Sending out like lambs in the midst of wolves, in other words, the danger is real. 1 Corinthians 6:18. Flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Do you know what flee means? Not these ones. Flee, this one. Get away. Why? Why get away? Because when you put yourself in proximity to sin, you incur a certain level of risk. And you should be very wise about that risk that you're incurring by putting yourself in proximity to sin. Understand that if you don't manage proximity actively, the nature of your participation will change over time. In other words, if you just blow off the risk that you incur to your own soul and just ignore it, your participation will gradually change and become more real. Do you Remember the naive youth in Proverbs 7? It says his problem was not that he was immoral, it was that he was ignorant, and he puts himself in proximity to danger. In this case, sort of, it seems like, not entirely deliberately, but also not completely in the dark about what he was doing. And man, once he's in proximity to danger, in this case, seduction, grabs a hold of him, and now he can't escape. He incurred a level of risk by putting himself into proximity to a moral threat that he did not survive. If you go into dark places without seeking the prayers and wisdom of other believers, you're not brave, you're naive. Remember the Fosters that were here, Breaking Chains Network, was that two weeks ago? They work with trafficked women, and he showed the, I think it was the one of the, not Sunday morning, but one of the other ones, showed the video of the the district where they work. And I actually appreciated the fact that that he when he was talking about that he said when my wife travels down through the district to talk with the women there's a level of of danger that he recognizes that he would incur that he's not willing to incur for himself although his wife is willing to incur that level of danger and i just thought that there's that's wisdom there's wisdom right it's a recognition that there's some things that i could expose myself to that might not be as great of a threat As it would be for you to expose yourself to, and you should be mindful of that. You should be careful about that. To say, well, it doesn't really bother me, is usually an expression of your cultural formation, not your spiritual formation. You've been shaped by the culture to normalize certain things, not shaped by God. That's number three. Number four, the issue of potential. What is there to be gained? Jesus, ultimately, is the prize for me and for you and for them. And if you're putting yourself into dark places, follow-up question is, are people encountering Jesus in truth and grace through your participation, or are you coy about your convictions? It was a big deal made about Jesus being with sinners, being with outcasts, being with low lives. A big deal is made about him going to them? And what is his message to them over and over through Scripture? Repent and sin no more. Jesus is there because of he believes there's a potential for something, but he's on mission with God. This has to be a conversation you're having with the Holy Spirit regarding His purpose. God, if you want me to go to Nineveh, I'll go to Nineveh. I think you already know, Nineveh's a pretty rough place. But if you could just be really clear with me about what your purpose is there and, and, and what we're after, I think I could own that. I don't think that there's any biblical precedent for taking the issue of potential as a first-order issue. What I mean by that is, the ends do not justify the means. If you ignore the issue of principle, of your participation in proximity, the potential for you there is probably far different than what you suspect. You track with me? You understand what I mean by that? You can't can't take this one out of order. You can't start with, well, there's a potential to share the gospel, so I'll ignore every other consideration. There's a really difficult part of this where some say, well, the potential is that I will save a particular friendship. And those are hard decisions. Especially when someone else makes my participation in something in particular the basis of our friendship, right? When someone says, well, if you won't be a part of this, then we can't be friends. That's a tough, that's a tough deal. Number five, the issue of perception. What's everyone gonna think? possible over the years that some of you have seen me at McDonald's, and I don't want you to get the wrong perception of who I am as a person. (laughs) Again, this is an issue where I think my generation, again, I'm just speaking from my own observations, that my generation has sort of poo-pooed this issue and said, well, it doesn't really matter what people think. The only way that you can truly embrace the, the idea, it doesn't matter what people think, is to, is to believe that people don't matter. To the degree that people matter to you, their input, their wisdom, their opinions, their observations matter. And I can't, I can't wholly allow that to steer all of my decision-making, which is why I've put this as one of six issues. But it is not an issue that I should just write off and say, well, you know, who cares what people think about what I'm doing? And again, I'm going to address this in a little more detail when we look at our biblical examples. But in dealing with perception, that is, how will people interpret my participation, I would encourage you to stay at the personal level, not the hypothetical level. By the hypothetical level, meaning, what will people who I have no relationship or control, relationship with or control over, think about this? That's not productive. But the question, what will my uh, my family of faith, or my immediate family, or my circle of friends? That's a valuable consideration. How would you perceive this? You track with what I'm saying there? Luke nineteen seven, Jesus went into the home of Zacchaeus, a corrupt robber, a tax man who had plundered the very families that Jesus was trying to reach. Jesus goes into his house to have lunch with him, and it says the crowd began to complain because they interpreted his participation as acceptance of Zacchaeus's behavior, right? There's a verse here that I think has been use, misused a little bit. If you grew up in church, you probably heard this first Thessalonians 5:22, abstain from every form of evil. The version you probably heard was avoid all appearances of evil. And the way that that was kind of used, which I don't think reflects the intention of the passage, was you should not you should not ever do anything that that some Christian somewhere might get the wrong idea about. That's not what that means. What the passage is actually saying is, in your decision-making, if something looks like it could be evil, just don't do it. That's what he's saying. If it looks like it could be wrong, then just stay away from it. It's not worth it. The issue of perception, we'll unpack that a little bit more. Lastly, the issue of personal conviction. What does my conscience tell me? Does the Spirit of God have anything to say to me about my decision, and have I asked Him? Different people with different experiences and different dispositions will be in danger in different ways and will have different kinds of opportunities. God knows personally for you where the opportunities are for you to be on mission with Him and where you're endangering yourself. He knows because He knows you perfectly and He can instruct you and that matters and you should seek that from Him keeping in mind that personal conviction adds to the issue of principle. It does not subtract from it. In other words, if there is a principle that says, okay, here are the boundaries, and I say, I understand those are boundaries, but I just am not comfortable with this, okay? Then expand that. But if you say, okay, here are the clear, this is clearly right and wrong, but it doesn't really bother me, so let's pull it in. Personal conviction adds to principle, doesn't take away from principle, the issue of principle. How are we doing? we doing okay? I feel like I'm chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga. Three passages that I think speak to this. None of them exactly, and none of them speak to all six of these issues. But I'm going to I'm going to show you kind of how they're connected, and then you're going to go home and try to sort through it. Passage number one uh, is the Jerusalem gathering, which is discussed in Acts fifteen sixteen and Galatians two. And let me just kind of tell you the story. So. Uh, the church is growing, the gospel is advancing, and has gone to the Gentiles. And then there's some Jews who became believers, sort of, yeah, they're actually called false believers, but they were, they were presenting themselves as believers, as followers of Christ, and then going to Gentiles and saying, well, if you want to follow Christ, you have to be circumcised. And there was this big hubbub with the early church to say, wait a minute, are we telling Gentiles that in order to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised? I don't think we're doing that. That would be a legal requirement that we're no longer under, right? Right? And they all said to each other, right? Yeah. Okay. We're on the same page on this. And they all came together in Jerusalem. And they said, No. We're not going to put that legal expectation on new believers who come from Gentile backgrounds. You do not have to be circumcised to be a part of the family of God. In fact, Paul says, uh, or Luke tells us, even Titus himself, who was a friend of theirs from a Greek background, was not obligated. He was actually one of the missionaries. He was not—he did not feel compelled to be circumcised. Paul gives a little additional information in Galatians 2 about this whole story. He says, we went down to Jerusalem. Titus was, didn't feel like pressure from the church leaders to be circumcised. It was great. And then Paul says, and then later in, in Athens, Peter was there hanging out with these Gentile uncircumcised believers. And then the Jewish brethren showed up and Paul started avo- or Peter started avoiding the Gentiles. He was trying to manage a perception issue. He had put himself in proximity with these Gentile believers and then started feeling a little self-conscious or maybe a little judged, a little condemned because these Jewish believers came to town, and he started uh, avoiding the Gentiles. And Paul says, and I called him out to his face for his hypocrisy. I'm glad Paul and I aren't friends. (laughs) He says, you're being a hypocrite because you're betraying the message of the gospel by trying to manage the perceptions of different groups. And then you go to Acts 16. This is (laughs) mind-blowing. Acts 16 begins. Paul brings Timothy, who's half Jew and half Greek, he says, we're going to go and preach the gospel to the unbelieving Jews. You should get circumcised. What? We just had this whole big thing about this. So which are we doing? Are we, are we, are we doing it or are we not doing it? Paul has a very different reaction to addressing the perceptions of the unbeliever, that is barriers to their salvation, than he does believers or religious believers and their uh, matters of, um, I would say, religious uh, standards. He approaches the two differently. On the issue of perception, Paul seems more concerned about the perception of unbelieving seekers than he is about the perceptions of legalistic religious believers. The reason he had Timothy circumcised is not because he thought it was going to buy him into the family of God, buy his salvation. There was no obligation. He said, if you want to reach this people group for Jesus Christ, you need to make a free decision to take away anything that would create a barrier of offense before you get a chance to share the gospel, you should get circumcised. Also, Titus, you're totally free. You do not have to get circumcised. No one's expecting you to. And these, these believers who tell you that you should, you should not listen to them. I would suggest that both decisions, for Timothy and for Titus, are decisions made in freedom, not compulsion. Paul does care about the perceptions of unbelievers and seems less interested to placate the religious types to meet their own expectations. Passage number two, Paul's use of freedom while on mission. This is 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may gain more." Is this on the screen? I don't think it is. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might gain Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I might gain those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, I became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may gain those Who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak that I may gain the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may, by all means, save some. Paul was willing to morph himself into new settings, into new places, morph himself to a new set of norms for the potential of reaching people for Christ. And yet, what he says here in 1 Corinthians 9 is that he never abandons his core principles in doing so. Do you hear what he said? He said, To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I am not under the law. And then he says, To those who are without the law, I became as one without the law, though I am not without the law." In other words, to the degree that I was able, I, I, I modified my own approach to fit what the situation called for. I jumped in with a, with a high expectation of the potential that was there. And yet, I did not violate my, my, my principles in my walk with Christ. I'm still under the law of Christ. Last one, still with me. Passage three. Now, this is concerning food sacrificed to idols. This is Paul talking again, First Corinthians eight. Apparently, they had asked him a question, and he said he responds. He says, "Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know." that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes one conceited, but love edifies people." He's actually saying, now I know, you all know what's up, and you're being kind of arrogant about it, and you need to settle down. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, then he is known by God, therefore, concerning the eating of food." Food which has been sacrificed to idols. Here's the deal. So this is participation, right? They were participating in, at some degree, in idol worship. That's how it was understood. And other people were trying to interpret, wait, what are you you doing? Why are you eating this meat? Are you worshiping idols? What does that mean? Now, concerning that, we know that the idol is nothing at all in the world, that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things, or are all things, and we exist for Him. One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So he says, we know that idols aren't real. There's only one God. However, not everyone has this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to idol worship until now, when they eat the food, they eat it as a sacrifice to an idol. Their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, food alone doesn't bring us closer to God. We're not worse if we don't eat. We're not better if we do eat. But be careful that your freedom does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weaker brother. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge... Dining in an idol's temple. They weren't just eating the meat, they were eating it in the temple of the idol. And he says, if someone else sees you, won't his conscience, as he if he is weak, be strengthened to join you? For through your knowledge, the one who is weak is ruined. The brother or sister for whose sake Christ died, and so by sinning against the brother and sister and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if that causes my, my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to sin. He seems to allow that someone could be eating in a temple without participating in evil. And yet, on the issue of personal conviction, Paul seems to be most concerned about the conscience-informed decisions of the weaker believer, and secondly, about how they show respect and care for each other as believers. This violation of conscience is very specific. The person is emboldened by another person's freedom to participate in a way that is a detriment to their own walk oh, you seem fine. Then I'll probably be fine. No, you won't be fine. They're not offended by the stronger believer. They're actually encouraged by the stronger believer to put themselves into proximity with something that represents their demise. And Paul says, when you do that knowingly, and you say, psh, it doesn't matter, I'm free. If you have a problem, that's your problem. Paul says, you're sinning against Christ. What you know to be true can actually make you an arrogant jerk if you're not motivated by godly love. And you're making the weaker Christian with a sensitive conscience feel less than. It's not appropriate. Chris, you're going to have to cut a song. Don't come up yet. Now an example, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pin myself to the map with this example, um, which for some of you, um, you'll wish I maybe went even further. Some of you will wish I had not gone that far, but I'll be out with it for myself. Uh, and I want to take uh, these six issues and apply them to an invitation to a same-sex wedding. How would Aaron Weiser address the six issues that I just mentioned, and respond to an invitation to attend a same-sex wedding. Are you ready for this? Once I'm out with it, uh, some of you might, just by nature of any difference of opinion, feel a little bit judged. We're all going to be okay. We're all a family. Okay. On the issue of principle, is it right or wrong? It's wrong no bones about it, the event itself is wrong. And again, um, if, you're, if you're in that place where you're like, man, I don't know what I think about this topic, um, stop reading books that say, did God really say? Those are not helpful. Get in the Word of God and let God and His Spirit inform you. It's wrong. It grieves God. And according to Romans 1, it's a pathway to a darkening mind. When we say yes to uh, sexual immorality, that is, things that are contrary to the good intentions of God, it has the effect of darkening our mind, which means further separating us from our connection to the Lord. That's what's happening. And I've watched it happen not just with same sex, any, any immorality where people commit to it. I've watched it happen, the darkening of their mind. It's tragic. We are awash in a culture of sexual overload. And the question is, can you see the issue from God's perspective? or do you only see it from your own cultural perspective? On the issue of participation, the second issue, is my participation real or symbolic? And in this case, uh, for me, it's actually fairly straightforward because the invitation tells me what I've been invited to participate in. What does the invitation say that I'm invited to? I'm invited to celebrate. 1 Corinthians 13 love cannot rejoice in unrighteousness it cannot because remember remember love is always referencing some version of truth right that's how I know if it's loving or not love cannot celebrate cannot rejoice in something that breaks the heart of God and that's, that is the very thing in, in, in most cases that, that it says in writing that I've been invited to do. Will you celebrate with us? I cannot. And the issue of proximity, what am I putting at risk? In this particular instance, I don't feel necessarily an immediate threat to my soul. Um, That's not something, for some of you here, there would be very much a seducing effect for you to be there in that environment. And for me, that's not, I have other temptations, other uh, ruinous potentials. That's not one of them. The issue of potential, what is there to be gained? This may be a stepping stone towards future relationship with a friend, but again, I have to answer the question or the issue of potential, solve the issue of potential in its right order. The ends do not justify the means. And the issue of perception, what will people think? This is a really convoluted riddle. (laughs) Do you think that That there would be a variety of interpretations if I if people see me at a same-sex wedding there would be right different people would take it as meaning different things and the issue of personal conviction what does my conscience tell me in this case I would say that my participation especially given my unique role as a pastor would embolden a weak-minded believer, to maybe say it's not that big of a deal. In a way that would be to their demise. And Paul says, if you act in such a way exercising your own freedom to embolden someone else to do something detrimental to their own walk with Christ, you're sinning against Christ. (laughs) Here's the deal, guys. However, you sort through it and land, I don't want to sin against Christ, right? And so I have to I have to wrestle with this. There's a guy by the name of Joe Dallas. I actually own a couple of resources of his. Um Joe Dallas was a practicing homosexual and then went into ministry. Uh, He was a pastor of a church that embraced homosexuality, spent a lot of time in the Word of God, and came to the conclusion that the Word of God was at odds with his ministry. Kind of came back to the Lord in full obedience, and he's written a number of books, a lot of resources and articles on how we wrestle with these issues, specifically in regards to the example that I just gave. How do we, how to relate and be in relationship and make decisions about the nature of our participation with people who um, are making decisions uh, and inviting us to participate in things that might violate our own conscience. Joe Dallas, look him up. John 17. Uh, Chris, you guys can go ahead and jump up. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one." I love the sentiment of the heart of Christ, and he's actually talking about his best friends. So, I know there's going to be some decisions that you have to make that are going to put you at odds in the world you live in. And I'm actually not praying that God would save you from that, I'm praying that He would protect you in that. So, here are my six directives Number one, study the Word. You need to educate yourself by being in the Word of God. You absolutely must. Number two, hear from the Spirit of God. Number three, talk to each other. Hey, I noticed you were at this thing. That was surprising. What? The, can you help me understand what you're motives were, your decision and being there at that thing. Talk to each other. Number four, pray for each other. Pray for each other. Number five, engage with the world. And finally, but not last or least, treasure Jesus. And I said this at the beginning, if you're not on mission taking the greatest gift that is available to the world and the person of Jesus Christ, if you're not on mission bringing him to the world in whatever environment you're in, none of this matters. You can ignore my very long sermon. The goodness of Jesus grips your soul such that you can't imagine living life without him. You cannot imagine a Christless existence. You're so deeply motivated that others would know him and treasure him. After that, There's a lot of complicated decision-making to make, right? About what that's going to look like and how I'm going to engage with the world I live in. But we've got to do that together as a family, building each other up, supporting and encouraging each other, praying for each other. Whew, I feel like a workout. Just stretch some muscles. Would you guys stand? Let's pray. a few moments to direct our attention to you, to express our affection for you through worship and I acknowledge now that its that it's in loving you that we find our fellowship with each other. Pray that you would give us grace, as a body of Christ called to be a light on a hill in a world gripped by darkness, that we would behave as truly the family of God, building each other up, nurturing each other in our faith, in our walk, in our convictions, most of all through our decisions individually, through our decisions collectively, that you would be glorified, that you would be lifted up, that your name would be made known in Jesus' name. I wanna tell you, if you're part of Church on the Rock family, you can land on these issues differently than I do, and you're still part of the family. Do you feel that? Not the humming, but do you, do you feel that? <laughs> you can wrestle and come to a, a different conclusion my goal this morning is actually not to solve it for you my goal is to shove you into the ring you need to sort it out and be on mission with god but we sort it out in conversation with each other not about each other understand that so next week two things next week when you go to your house churches talk about this talk about this sunday go listen to it. I know it's an hour long, but go listen to it again anyways. Refresh your memory. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you have a a spouse that's in children's ministry this morning, when you see them right after the service, just shake your head and say, well, it looks like it's time to find a new church, just to freak them out. (laughs) Grace and truth, That's that's how Jesus was experienced, grace and truth. The two are not at odds. They're not either end of any spectrum. Grace and truth. It's your calling in the world, in Homer, Alaska. I'm praying for you. We don't officially until 1230. So if you can stick around, it gets our teardown teams home for lunch a few minutes earlier, which is a blessing to them. Men's chapel tonight uh, at 630. Looking forward to that, we'll see some of you there. God bless you. You're dismissed.